You can turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 76. Psalm 76. Here again, this is God's holy and inspired and inerrant word. To the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm of Asaph, a song. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle, Selah. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment, to deliver all the oppressed of the earth, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. He shall cut off the spirit of princes. He is awesome. He is awesome to the kings of the earth. Well, as it is the first Lord's Day of this month, we find ourselves once again looking at another psalm of the month, Psalm 76. And I ask you, ask you to remember some of the things we have considered before as we've looked at the last few psalms that are in book three of the Psalter. Uh, as we've noted before, as you work your way through the Psalter uh, and come to book three, which is Psalms 73 to Psalm 89, there's a little bit of a, of a change, and we're meant to see, uh, in, in, if it, even only in slight ways, the various themes that kind of develop in each of the books as they progress. And as I've mentioned before, there's a general progress uh, of, from humiliation to exaltation as you work your way through the Psalter, and that's why the last several psalms are all psalms of praise. But in book three, there is this sense of crisis, you remember, and of bewilderment, uh, there is a sense of struggle over the veracity of the purpose and promise of God. And that is largely because book three, for the most part, has for its backdrop in general the Babylonian captivity, uh, where God's people were taken away from their own land, the land of promise, and the temple was destroyed and carried to the land of Babylon. And as we read uh, just earlier from Isaiah, and this would happen not too long after the days of Hezekiah, we see the Babylonian captivity and the things that happened in that captivity more explicitly referred to in particular psalms in book 3, like, for example, Psalm 74, which we've already looked at, and then Psalm 79 and some others. But we also see in several of these psalms indications of God's judgment upon his people for their unfaithfulness. And if you know about the history of God's people after the days of Solomon and after the division of uh, the kings, um, a division of the kingdom and the various kings that came from those, you know the great wickedness and rebellion that dominated that time period and the reign of the kings, though there were a few bright and shining lights like Hezekiah and Josiah in the midst of them. 
Yet the Lord did, in a sense, cast off his people. He disciplined them. He excommunicated them. And then 70 years later, he would restore them. But he excommunicated them for their apostasy from him overall. And so what we find in a lot of the Psalms in book 3 of the Psalter are questions that the psalmist asks, like, why do the wicked prosper? And why does the anger of the Lord burn against his people? Why has the Lord cast us off? Uh, How long, O Lord, will this go on? And in the psalm we looked at last time, Psalm 75, we saw something of God's response to those questions. Do you remember that? God himself speaks plainly in Psalm 75, very directly and explicitly, in verse 2. And if you were to just turn, flip your pages of your Bible over and be reminded of Psalm 75, verse 2, God says, When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. I will intervene, God says. I will render a judgment upon your enemies. I will deliver you and raise you up and will establish you and bless you once again. And all your enemies and my enemies will be defeated. But I will do it at the proper time. According to my timetable, not according to yours. I will render a judgment in time and in history and then ultimately at the end of the world. And we noted the particularly striking language that God used with regard to the defeat of his enemies. Remember, in Psalm 75, in verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. They will drink the cup of God's wrath. They will drain it and drink it down, down to its very dregs. And then, of course, we noted that Christ himself drank that cup of wrath for us. Well, Psalm 76 is very much a continuation of Psalm 75, for it carries along the story and has similar lines of thought, and several commentators have pointed this out and seen that connection, even commentators that don't ordinarily see a progression and a flow and look for a continuity from one psalm to the next. But what we have in Psalm 76 is now, for all intents and purposes, a description of God defeating his enemies, of intervening in time and in history and judging them. It is a picture of God rising up to judge the enemies of his people and wicked rulers in particular. You remember... What the psalmist says in Psalm 74, just two psalms before this, at the beginning, he says in verse 1, O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Then in verse 3, he says, Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. And he goes on, but he's asking the question, Where are you, God? Why don't you come? Lift up your feet and come and see and look what the enemies have done to that beautiful temple that was your house that's now in shambles and is destroyed and demolished by the enemy. And then in Psalm 75, God says, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. And in Psalm 76, we see him judging. Look at verse 9 in particular of our psalm when God arose to judgment. That's what the previous psalms have been say, psalmists have been saying in the previous psalms. When will you arise? God arose to judgment, to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. Thus we are given a picture in this psalm, an illustration and a depiction of God's awesome power as he rises up to judge. And this description of God's judgment is meant to strike fear into the hearts of kings who dare to oppose him, who dare to oppose his anointed Christ, who he has set upon the throne. We read about that, we read about that in Psalm 2, right? And I've become more and more convinced that the Psalms are addressed to kings and rulers and judges 
in a unique way. The more I read and study the Psalter, the more I see that, yes, the Psalter is for all of God's people, but over and over again, the kings and the rulers and the judges are addressed like we have in Psalm 2. It's a call to them to submit to King Jesus, to repent of their sins and their rebellion from Christ and from His law and from His Word. And we see um, the, the, one of the main key uh, uh, verses expounded upon throughout the Psalter from Psalm 2, which we sang earlier. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kings and rulers and judges are to sing these songs. They are to be in their mouths and they are to be warned by them. They are to be sung to them when they can be, if they actually attend church and worship and, and will hear some of these psalms being sung to them. But they are so they're to be sung to them and also to be sung by them. And they have been. I would have you know that they have been in the history of the church. And Psalm 76 in particular has been preached and sung with an earshot of rulers of this earth. In fact, John Witherspoon, for those of you who know his name, in early American history preached a great, a tremendous, a very monumental sermon on Psalm 76, verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, and with the remainder of wrath you shall gird yourself. He preached it just a couple of months before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He preached it to the College of New Jersey, which is now Princeton, on May 17, 1776. And he himself signed the Declaration of of independence, the only minister to do so. But his sermons was greatly used by God in the lives of many at the time of the war for American independence. This psalm was also greatly loved and often sung by the Scottish covenanters. I'm going to try to get through this without tearing up about this story. But the Scottish covenanters sought to worship God faithfully in Scotland, and they were forbidden to do so. And so they would meet outside in what were called conventicles. And not only the ministers, but anybody could be arrested, they could be imprisoned, they could be killed for worshiping God by people in the church who forbade them to do so. In one particular instance, there was a minister by the name of Thomas Douglas. By the way, these conventicles sometimes were huge. There's, on one day, reported that 16,000 would go on one Lord's Day. Not to one conventicle. There were various conventicles. On one Lord's Day, there were as many as 16,000 going to these conventicles. Thomas Douglas was out there preaching, and he was in the middle of his sermon when there was a warning shot fired, there, when there was trouble, and uh, there was the possibility of arrest, and etc. They would shoot a warning shot so that people would be ready. And halfway through Thomas Douglas's sermon, he closed his Bible, he heard the warning shot, and he said, now it's time. He said, you've heard the theory. Now it's time for the practice. Take up your arms. You have the right to defend yourself. And, and uh, the man who was coming after them is known as Bloody Claverhouse with 250 men. And those in the conventicles, in that conventicle, took up Psalm 76 and they sang it. They sang it as they fought against their enemies. And, you know, I think that a lot of times, I think that the Psalms 
have fallen into disuse in the church because we have lost that sense of war with the enemies of God's people who are real people who hate you and who hate the church and they are out to destroy you and if the restraints were taken off you'd be dead in a moment and I think that probably when the church undergoes persecution again they're going to say at least about some of the songs in the church these just aren't good enough Give me a song that I can sing under the, under the persecution and the wrath of my enemies. Now, as we begin to take a, a look at this psalm, it's helpful for us to know that there is a historical context, as I said. With many of the psalms, commentators are not agreed, and they can be all over the place trying to find uh, the historical context of a particular psalm. And for many psalms, we don't have one, and we don't need one. There is a sense in which the psalms stand alone and are always applicable to God's people at all times in every age, regardless of the historical context in which they were written. However, where there does seem to be a strong and clear tie to a historical situation, such a context should not be ignored because that historical context can help us to understand and appreciate the psalm all the more. And there is pretty unanimous agreement that this psalm has for its backdrop the invasion of the Assyrian army, or I should say the attempted invasion of the Assyrian army, into the land of Judah in the days of Hezekiah, which we read earlier. And that incident is actually very important in the life of God's people. And one of the reasons we know it's important is because the author of Kings records it in 2 Kings 18 and 19. The author of Chronicles records it in 2 Chronicles 32. And Isaiah records it in the chapters that we read, chapters 36 and 37. But also in support of this view that this is most likely based upon that historical situation, is that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, part of the title before the psalm, the inscription above it, it says, a song upon the Assyrians. And so there's good reason to believe that this is a psalm written with that historical context in view. Now, I want to say one other comment. We've talked about how the third book of the Psalter is really about the Babylonian captivity, and here we see that's not what's in view when it comes to the days of Hezekiah and the Assyrians coming in. So that instance is the historical backdrop for this psalm, but it's picked up and placed here in the Psalter because it's also applicable very much so to what happened with the Babylonian captivity in general and how God delivered his people um, and, and would restore them. But it's applicable in this, in this progression, okay, in this time of crisis in Book 3 of the Psalter. And, of course, it's applicable to all um, ages of the church. And we'll see as we work through this psalm uh, just how much it is applicable to us. So... Let's work our way through Psalm 76 together, one verse at a time, to seek to better understand it, appreciate it, and apply it to our lives. The psalmist starts in verse 1 by stating, In Judah God is known, his name is great in Israel. Here there is a particular focus on the revelation of God and the knowledge of God among his people. Interestingly, the word God used here is not Jehovah or Yahweh, but Elohim. This is the more general title for God. Even false gods, in a sense, shared this, ty- this name, Elohim. Elohim can be translated either as God or gods, depending on the context. It has a plural ending, that im, Elohim, that's a plural ending, kind of like our apostrophe S. And so we understand that Elohim is about the one true and living God, but there's a plurality within the Godhead, right? And therefore, it is Elohim. But in the psalm, it is a reference to the fact that the only true and living God, who is the creator God, who is the God of the universe, is particular, in particular, the God of his people, 
Though he is God of all, he has not revealed himself to all, nor made himself known to all. But this verse narrows the focus of his operations in Revelation even further. Because although his name is great in Israel, as it says, that is, historically great among all of God's covenant people, yet he is especially known in Judah, isn't he? Because at this point in redemptive history, whether you're talking about the Assyrian invasion in the days of Hezekiah or the time of the Babylonian captivity years later, the northern kingdom of Israel has been cut off by God, cast off. God sent her a certificate of divorce. That's what Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah 3.8. The northern kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, were cast off and would become the Samaritans of Jesus' day, named after their capital city, Samaria. And what did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? We know what we worship, but you do not know. You do not know what you worship because salvation is of the Jews. It is of the Jews because salvation has been given primarily to the Jews. The Jews are from the land of Judea, which is from the, the, the tribe of Judah, who was the only one of Israel's 12 sons who was given the promise that from his loins the Messiah would come. And so Christ especially makes himself known in Judah. And how did Christ make himself known in his own day, in, in Jerusalem, in Judea and in Jerusalem? And we think about the, the, the ministry and the miracles of Christ in Jerusalem. And some of the greatest works of Christ were done in Jerusalem, right? The raising of Lazarus was around the area of Jerusalem, you see. But even then, many did not believe in him. Paul tells us in Romans that a true Jew, a true Judean, as it were, is not one who is merely outward and of the flesh, and circumcision just of the flesh, but inward. And true circumcision is that of the heart. And so, don't we see this circle getting smaller and smaller of those to whom God reveals himself to? He, he reveals himself to all of his covenant people, to Israel, and then it's narrowed down to the tribe of Judah. And even there, among the Jews, there were only uh, a small number of believers, especially in Jesus' day. And in some sense, that's true in the church, right? God is... God is the God of, of all those who are a part of the church and who are marked by baptism and who are in covenant with him, who have made membership vows, etc., etc. But that does not necessarily mean that every single one of those truly knows the Lord. But, but Judah is now the church, and, he is great, and God is great among us. God has revealed himself to us. And I know that you all know God in this place. I know that you know who the Lord is. And you've been brought up, many of you, in the church, and you're in the church now. But I don't know for sure that all of you have been circumcised in your heart. I don't know if all of you children have truly cast yourself upon the Lord for your salvation. And that you can say, I know the Lord. I don't just know him in the church. I don't just know him because my parents know him. I don't just know him because the pastor's up there preaching about him. But I know the Lord. Children, do you know the Lord is your personal Savior? Not just the Savior who died on the cross for the sins of people, but that he's yours. But we also see in this verse a connection to the previous psalm again, don't we? In Psalm 75, verse 1, there we read, Your wondrous works declare that your name is near. And then in this psalm, we see that his name, his name is great in Israel because of the works that God has done for her, that is, in her midst, specifically the deliverance from King Sennacherib of the Assyrians in this instance. Now, Verse 2 elaborates on verse 1 further and intensifies it in some ways. 
by stating that not only in Judah is God known, but in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. The word Salem, as we know, is a shortened form of Jerusalem. It was called Salem long before the Jebusites took it over and before David then took it over from the Jebusites. But if you combine the Je from the Jebusites um, with Salem, you're beginning to see where the word Jerusalem comes from, right? But the word Salem, I was surprised to see this, is only used in two places in the Old Testament. Only two places. Here, and then in Genesis 14, 18, where we are told that Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, brought out bread and wine to Abraham after Abraham and his men, you know, went after Keterlaomer and defeated him and brought Lot back and all the goods that were taken. And so the psalmist is drawing our attention back to that day and that time when Abram defeated his enemies. And he's telling us that he did it with God's help, you see. Salem means peace or place of peace. And when Melchizedek went out to greet Abraham and bless him, this was an instance of great peace, but only after a great battle, only after God helped Abram to defeat his enemies. And in this psalm, we see that all is well, uh, we, we, see that, we see that all is well, and there's peace and quiet and stillness in the kingdom only after the war has been waged and God's people have won through God's help. Look at verse 8 of our psalm. You caused judgment to be heard from heaven, then the earth feared and was still. That's a word that can be also translated as peace or quietness. Now we know that Jerusalem and Mount Zion, which is the city which Jerusalem, uh, which the city of Jerusalem was on, was the place where God chose to dwell. We could think of Psalm 132, 13 through 14 in this regard, which says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And so Jerusalem and Zion, and specifically the temple in Jerusalem, was God's home on earth and where God manifested his presence to his people first in the tabernacle and then at the temple. And the Shekinah glory cloud was a manifestation of God's presence here. It was the place where God was worshipped and where the sacrifices were offered. But what is striking about this verse, pay attention now, because you're not going to, if you don't hear it now, you won't get this later when you read it another time. In the Hebrew text, the words that are used in this verse for tabernacle and dwelling place are rich in meaning, and they're not what you would think by just a cursory reading on the surface. The word translated tabernacle can be translated as such, but this is not the standard word for tabernacle that we see countless of times in the Old Testament. I mean, how many times is the word tabernacle used? Well, that's not this word. This word, soak, is only used four times. Only four times in the Bible. And it is a word that often refers to a lair or a thicket where an animal would, would hide waiting for its prey. And that's the primary meaning of this word. This same word is found in Jeremiah 25, verse 38, where it says this in reference to God. It says, he has left his lair like the lion. That's that, that word lair is the same word translated tabernacle here. He has left his lair like the lion because of the fierceness of the oppressor and because of the fierce anger of his enemies. And then the word dwelling place is a word that is most often translated as den. It's only used ten times in the Bible and eight times it's translated as den in our Bibles. Psalm 104, 21 and 22 says this, The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and they lie down in their dens. That's our word. That's the word for dwelling place. Amos 3, 4 says this, 
Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? That word den is the word in our text. And so the imagery here, that you, you don't get like the fullness of the meaning, like it, it, it's understood of the tabernacle, but there's a deeper and richer meaning there, you see. The imagery here is really of God himself as a lion who is crouching down in his lair at Mount Zion. And he is just waiting to pounce on the enemies who would come and attack his people. And this is something of a play on words when we look at verse 4. Verse 4 of Psalm 76 mentions the mountains of prey. And we'll look at that verse later. But it's, it's anticipating this idea later. Thus, God is being depicted as a lion here. And who is it that is described in the scriptures as a lion but King Jesus? He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. None other than him. Thus, here is Christ like a lion watching over his people, watching over the church. He is in the midst of them, and he is in the midst of us. And Christ wants you to know that he is here like a lion to devour the enemies who would come after you, to protect you. See, Christ is defending us. He's for you, believer. He's for you. You know, there was a time when I was at... Uh, at a zoo, and uh, I don't mean to use Perry's name, but he'll, he'll remember this because we were there at the zoo together. And we were with family, and there was, we were at the lion's den. And we, wa- we waited there a long time because we wanted to hear the lion roar, right? We wanted to be able to, because, you know, that roar is, is amazing. Uh, but we, we waited and waited, and we didn't get a chance to hear it. But what the lion did was he gave kind of like a little grunt. He just went, mm. and he was like way over there, and we felt the ground shaking underneath of us as a result of that. And we were like, we felt the tremble of the lion grunting. As there's a reason why Christ is called the lion. There's a reason why the lion is called the king of the jungle, right? But you see, those so, so we're protected by this lion, but those who are outside the church and those who are outside of Christ ought to be very, very afraid of this lion, you see. Now in verse 3, we see that the Lord, this lion of the tribe of Judah, makes null and void all the attempts of the enemy to destroy us. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. The word there for arrow is actually a word that means flame. In some translations, like the NAS, translated as flaming arrows because the Assyrians and others, you know, people in empires like them, would shoot those flaming arrows, right? But using these terms is a way, using all of these terms, the bow, the arrow, the shield, and the sword, was a way of really kind of summarizing all the weapons of war that were at men's disposal to use, all the implements of war. I mean, if it was in our day, then we would have to make the list super long, right? Because they didn't have all the weapons back then. We'd have to list, like, the grenade and, like, the bazooka and the flamethrower. But you just bring them all together, and it's a summary for them all. But it is in light of all the implements of war that the enemy can possibly muster that it says God will easily destroy them. He will break them to pieces. He will shatter them, which is what the word means. He will shatter their bows and their shields and their swords. The lion of the tribe of Judah will be our shield. He will quench. He will extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one against us. Because, congregation, we're not just talking about the Assyrians, right? We're talking about the, the, the fierce enemies behind that are far worse than any, what anyone on this earth could do. You know, I hope in the near future to do a series of lectures on angels in the Bible and to read and study about how powerful angels are 
and how powerful Satan is. And that's why Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you. Because Satan wants to take you and he wants to sift you as wheat and he, he would do something to you that no one, that's not even imaginable in this earth. Satan is so powerful, congregation. So powerful. But he is no match at all for the Lord. Now it's critical to understand what the most important word is in this verse. It's actually not the, the word arrow or bow or shield or sword. It's not even the word broke. You know the most important word in this verse? It's the word there. There. Where is there? There is where the, the, the bow and arrow and the sword and shield were broken. It is in Salem or Zion. It is the place of worship, the temple in Jerusalem. But wait a minute. Is that where the, the arrows were, were flying in, in Hezekiah's day? Were, were they in the temple? Were they there um, inside the temple when they were brandishing their swords and were, uh, they were fighting? No. But it was in the temple where the battle was won, where Hezekiah cried out to the Lord in prayer and God answered him. Do you remember that? I want to read just a few of those verses again. Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah 37, 10 through 20. Excuse me. Starting at verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. And so here we see this is where the battle was won, you see. And this is we have to remember that this is where all true battles are won. It's in the place of prayer. And we have to come before the Lord like Hezekiah did Right? Hezekiah had this letter right, from the Rabshakeh mocking God. And we have to come before the Lord and we say, Lord, do you hear the taunts of your enemies? Do you see this piece of legislation they're trying to pass through? Do you see what they're saying and doing to your people? And we cry out to the Lord and ask him to bless and to answer and to work and to come to our rescue. Look how God answered the prayer of Hezekiah. You see, even in the Old Testament, the people of God did not win by the skill and use of their bows and arrows and their swords and their shields. How do they conquer? Through the means of grace that God has appointed. Through prayer, through worship, through obedience, through the singing of the psalms like this one, you see. And so, we have to remember that the answer to our problems is not found in the implements of war. It's not found in, in a lot of things that we're prone to think that they're found in. Like maybe just the good old days, if we could just go back and if things could be better and we could just be more conservative. Or if we could just reform our school system more. Or if more people would just vote for the right person, if we could just get the right candidate in. It's not the ultimate answer. I'm not saying none of those things are, are, are unimportant. But the answer is in prayer. The answer is in the means of grace. The answer is in obedience and repentance and partaking of the sacraments and worshiping the Lord. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You see, God will see to it that he receives all the glory. And this is the understanding that Hezekiah had and that the psalmist has, that God is the one who is victorious and triumphant. 
It's what leads him to declare in verse 4, You, God, are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. Now, when you first read the latter half of verse 4, it might be hard to understand what the psalmist is getting at. But the phrase, mountains of prey, is most likely a reference to the devastation that had been wrought by the Assyrian Empire. Mountains are used to represent kingdoms. And Assyria was the great empire of its day. And it had conquered and was conquering all the nations and all the kingdoms around it, you see. And so you can just imagine, as if you were to look out at the lay of the land, if you can just picture this, the mountains of prey, that is, all the kingdoms, all the nations that the Syrians destroyed and slaughtered, and there's just the bodies of all the dead people, you see. That's the idea. You see, the Assyrians were a cruel people. In their ancient drawings that you can see, we actually have a lot of information about the cruelty of the Assyrians. And some of it I won't mention because it's too, it's really too gross. But just to mention a few things, they would impale people on large stakes. They would dismember them, cutting off limbs. They would gouge out eyes. They would torture their victims. They would strew them out on the hills and the valleys. All these people who were dead and killed and they would torture them. And so we can just imagine the fear, right, of Hezekiah and the people because, you know, do, do we trust in the Lord? And, and do we try to resist? And do we try to fight them somehow, this great Assyrian empire? And if you read the account, they had already attacked the cities in Judah. Now they were coming to the temple, and they had no hope, no hope of defeating their enemy. And Hezekiah cries out to the Lord, and God had to be the one to deliver them. John Calvin said this, The psalmist here compares those great kings who had acquired large dominions by violence and the shedding of human blood to savage beasts who live only upon prey, and their kingdoms to mountains covered with forests which are inhabited by beasts. The enemies of God's ancient people had been accustomed to make violent and furious assaults upon God's people. But it is affirmed that God greatly surpassed them all in power, that the faithful might not be overwhelmed with terror. But here the psalmist is saying that God is more glorious, far more glorious than such a reign of wickedness. You know, men glory in their power and in their accomplishments, don't they? Isn't that what Nebuchadnezzar did, right? Look at what I've been able to do and my power that I have gotten. And when such men reign in power, it's darkness that prevails. But by contrast, God is this glorious light in the midst of this dark world. The word glorious in our text actually means to be or become light. And there's a, a strong connection between glory in the Bible and light. In fact, the NIV translates this verse, you are radiant with light, where we have, you are more glorious. But that word is used in Genesis 1, when God created the, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That's the word that's used in the Aaronic benediction, when it says, the Lord make his face shine on you, make his light glow upon you, be glorious upon you. And Mount Zion was to be a reflection of that light of God. It was to be a place of light. And we know as we've looked at some of the feasts as we've gone through the Gospel of John, especially the Feast of Tabernacles, at night they would light up that city. And especially in the temple, there was lights everywhere so that if you looked at a distance, it was a great, big, bright light, almost like a giant candle on the top of Mount Zion. God's people were to be a light to the Gentiles, and Christ ultimately is that light. And then we see how glorious, then, is Christ's merciful and gracious and compassionate reign as king. What a, what a king we have in Jesus, who is so full of love and so full of light, unlike the darkness that those various wicked empires brought. He is a king like no other. 
And one day we will bask in that glory, in the light of Christ forevermore. There will be no need, no need for the sun or the moon, for the glory of God will illuminate it, it says in Revelation 21. And the Lamb will be its light. And the way that the Lord triumphed over his enemies was also glorious, wasn't it? It was incredible. We see that in verses 5 and 6. There we have an account of the defeat of the Assyrian army at the time that they were about to lay siege to Jerusalem. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a deep sleep. You see, this describes for us very well, doesn't it, what we read happened in Isaiah 37 after Hezekiah prayed. It says in verse 36, which we read earlier, listen to it again. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. You've got to just love this repetition, right? This is a great verse. They were killed. Of course, there are corpses and they're dead. But then it mentions there were the corpses all dead, like emphasizing these people are dead as a doornail, right? They're dead. The author of Second Chronicles adds this bit of information in, it, in um, uh, that rendition in verses, uh, verse 21 of chapter 32. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor and leader and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he, that is Sennacherib, returned shamefaced to his own land. But that, notice that from Isaiah's wording, it seems pretty likely that because the people saw this great slaughter early the next morning, that the angel of the Lord came through at night, right? As they were just asleep in their tents. And the angel of the Lord came and cut them all down, 185,000 in one night. That's what the angel of the Lord did. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep, and none of the mighty men have found the use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a deep sleep. Matthew Henry says this, They had slept, not the sleep of the righteous who sleep in Jesus, but their sleep, the sleep of sinners, is of those who shall awake to everlasting shame and contempt. One of the things that the Assyrian kings would do to their captives, if, no, if nothing else, was to cut off their hands the hands of those that they had enslaved. Therefore, they would never be able to rebel, rise up in rebellion, right, against the king and against the Assyrian empire because without your hands, you can do nothing. And here it says that God made it so they could not use, they could not make use, they could not find the use of their hands. They didn't even have the opportunity to use them. And how did God do this? We, we see just like, it seems so simple, right? The angel of the Lord just comes in and wipes out all, this pe all these people. He just rebuked them. That's what it says in our text. He rebuked them. Psalm 80, verse 16, comments, uh, gives us a little bit more about God rebuking. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. It's not even saying a rebuke. It's the rebuke of God's countenance. And you know, sometimes... I know when I was a child, but then also you children, probably there's been a time where maybe you see your father or some authority figure and they give you a stern look, right? And especially a little child, sometimes depending on what the child's like and their temperament, right? That little child would just shrink in fear at the stern look of their father. And here, here the stern look of God, just with his countenance, you see, the stern look of anger. And his angel was sent, and he slew them all. They perished with one look of his countenance. And on the final day of judgment, all it will take is one stern look from Christ, one rebuke from his countenance, 
And the people, the people will melt like wax on the day of judgment. As it says in Revelation 6, 15 and 16, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. One look of anger and they will be terrified. And therefore we read in verse 7, You yourself, the idea there is you alone are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? The end of that verse is actually more literally at the time of your anger. Remember Psalm 75, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. Well, that time came in the days of Hezekiah, and it will come again. But remember that this is God's anger preeminently at the kings and judges and rulers of the earth. And it harkens back to Psalm 2 again, doesn't it? Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little with just a look of his countenance, with just a stern and angry look. Now, it's very important for us to remember that in Christ, God's anger is turned away from us, isn't it? And this is important for us to understand and realize as we familiarize ourselves with the Psalms because the words wrath and anger come up a lot of times in the Psalms. I counted at least 35 recently. But remember that helpful comment by John Calvin when we looked at Psalm 74, verse 1, where it says God's anger burns against the sheep of his pasture. He said, properly speaking, God is not angry with the elect. Rather, his anger and wrath toward his people, all of it, was poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross congregation, God will not have a shred of anger for any of you who've trusted in Christ on the day of judgment. Not even so much as a hint. Nothing. Nil. Nada. None. It was all poured out on Christ. There is no need to fear the day of judgment if you are in Christ. Not at all. His righteousness covers you. It will be a day of great rejoicing as you are openly acknowledged and acquitted on that day. In fact, it could be possibly said that that will be the greatest day of your entire existence will be the day of judgment where you are acquitted and you're embraced and comforted by your Lord and Savior who died and bore that anger for you. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 12, 1, Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, that is, in my unbelief, though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. And I ask you, congregation, will you be comforted on that day? Will you be one of those who is openly acknowledged and acquitted that you've trusted in Christ and you've believed in him and his righteousness has been credited to you and so that the Lord Jesus will embrace you? Or will it be the look of an angry countenance and you'll cry out, Oh, save me from the face of this man and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the believer on that day, it will be far different. You know, people talk about what they want to say to God when they see him, right? They want to, they want to ask God, why didn't you ever reveal yourself to me? Or why did you allow this and accuse God? No one's going to do that, congregation. No one's going to do that. 
They're going to be so ashamed of all of their sin and wickedness that's exposed before the world. They're going to shrink in shame, and they're going to see the holiness of God, and they're going to do exactly what it says in Revelation 6. Who will save me from the wrath of the Lamb? God made himself known, and they will have no excuse. And God often makes himself known in the judgments, uh, his judgments known in the earth, in time and in history. Look at verses 8 and 9. You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth. It's been maintained by extra-biblical Jewish writers that when the angel of the Lord came and slaughtered those 185,000, there was like this clap of thunder that happened at that time. Now, we can't say whether that happened for sure or not. Scripture doesn't say. But either way, there is no doubt that when Sennacherib saw 185,000 of his men slaughtered, lying on the ground, there was no question, I guarantee you, there was no question in his mind that the God of Israel, the God of Judah, the God of Hezekiah had done this and had delivered them. And we know that there have been many other times, haven't there, in redemptive history, when people had no doubt that it was the hand of God that brought deliverance for his people. God intervened in history, right, with Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, no doubt when this man became an animal for years, this was the hand of God that, that afflicted this man. We could think about King Agrippa in the New Testament, right? When people were saying, he's like a god, and he's up there, and the angel of the Lord strikes him down. We could think about the history of the church. We can think about the judgment upon Rome, right? Here's this great Roman Empire, and here's this little band of disciples, and it grows and it spreads, and they don't take up arms. They just pray and worship God and die for the faith. And the kingdom of Christianity, the kingdom of Christ grows and flourishes, and the Roman Empire is no more. That's God's judgment in history. But you know, congregation, there's one judgment that stands out among all the rest. One judgment that was heard from heaven and known to have been from heaven when God arose to judge his one and only son. There was no doubt, no question, to look at this one who is holy and harmless and undefiled, ripped up, open, hanging upon the cross. This was the judgment of God. And when the veil of the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, and, and there was an earthquake, right, and the rocks split, and the graves were opened, and many of the saints who had died came out of their graves. They were raised from the dead, and it says they appeared to many. And when the centurion and those with him saw the earthquake, and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. And what happened at that moment? Christ delivered all the oppressed of the earth. That is, that is all the meek and all the humble and all who are of contrite heart. That word oppressed is the word for meek. It's, it's the word that's used of Moses who was the most meekest man on earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The meek are those who have humbled themselves before the Lord, and they've seen their sin, and they've, they've beat their, their chest in shame, and they've cried out, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. You can't be very proud and be a true believer at the same time. I'm not saying pride can't exist. It exists in all of us. But you can't be too proud. That's impossible. Because, as one has well said, a true believer has seen something of themselves, something of their true selves and of their own sin and of their own capabilities to sin, and they're horrified by it. They place no hope in themselves whatsoever because God has given them a sight of who they 
really are. Congregation, is that how you view yourself? Do you see, do you, have you seen a glimpse of your own sin and are you horrified by it? By who you are and what you are apart from the work of God's grace in your life? And then comes this incredible statement in verse 10. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. With the remainder of wrath, you shall gird yourself. That end of that phrase, gird, gird yourself, is a word that can, be refer, that can be translated restrain. This idea of the, the leftover wrath of men is restrained by God, and he just kind of puts it on a belt and doesn't allow it to be used like a belt. But God is in complete control of all the designs and plans, yes, even the wrath of wicked rulers. And he would cause it to bring praise to him every time, just as he used the wrath of Sennacherib to bring him praise. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 37, two verses that we skipped over earlier. Isaiah 37, 28 and 29. This is part of Isaiah's message regarding King Sennacherib. This is what God says through Isaiah. But I know your dwelling place, King Sennacherib. You're going out and you're coming in, and your rage against me, because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose. Sennacherib was doing, used to doing that to others. God says, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. God says, Sennacherib, I see your wrath. And this is what God says to all the rulers of the world who don't submit to King Jesus. He looks down upon them and he says, I see your wrath. I see your wrath against me. I see your wrath against my son, right? Psalm 2, I see it, and I will repay. But just think of how many times God has used the wrath of man to bring him praise. The wrath of a pharaoh in Egypt to bring God praise. The wrath of an Esau who wanted to kill his brother Jacob to bring God praise. The wrath of a Nebuchadnezzar against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You hear that? You read that story. Nebuchadnezzar was angry with them. Make that furnace seven times hotter. And God used his wrath, the wrath of a Nebuchadnezzar to bring him praise. The wrath of a Haman against a Mordecai. The wrath of a Jewish mob and Jewish leaders and a Jewish people against the Son of God who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, how God has used the wrath of man to praise him. Therefore, congregation, don't fear wicked rulers in their wrath. Don't fear politicians in positions of power and influence who oppose the church and the kingdom of God on earth, who oppose your safety and your well-being, who hate God and oppose what is good and right and just, for God will always cause the wrath of man to praise him in the end every single time. But rather, the message of this psalm is fear God. Fear God. Fear God instead. As Jesus said in Luke 12, 4 and 5, and I say to you, you can just hear Jesus. You can just hear Jesus. He says, it's not one of these things he says very often. He says, and I say to you, my friends, my friends, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And that's Jesus speaking to the crowds in the imperative. Fear God. Don't fear man. And I ask you, congregation, do you live your lives out of fear of others? Always thinking about what others think about you. Does your, is your life... Is it, is, it, is, it, is it kind of guided by the opinions and thoughts of what others have of you? 
Always doing those things that will please others. Always doing the things with the opinions of others on your mind. And I know, right, we're all guilty of this, right? We all are to some degree. But do you seek to please men first or God first? Do you fear man or do you fear God? This psalm calls upon all the rulers of the world and all of us as well to fear the Lord and not to be terrified and scared if we're in Christ, but to have that healthy reverence and, and fear of God like, like a child who reverences his father and would want to please him. You see, this psalm calls us to fear the Lord and to live for him and to make vows unto him and to keep them. Look at verse 11. Make vows to the Lord your God and pay them. Or you could translate that, fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring presents to him who ought to be feared. You see this theme developing. Fear is used four times in the last few verses of this psalm. We're almost done. I was talking to some of my children the other day and they were asking me about oaths and vows and the vows that I've made. And I can, I can think of my marriage vows, and I can think of my membership vows, and I can think of my vows as a minister of the gospel in the RPCNA. And we are, as God's people, and I've mentioned this before, we are to make vows unto the Lord. Otherwise, when we read and sing the Psalms, they make no sense to us because vows are mentioned over and over again. But we are to make vows to Him and to fulfill them and to seek to glorify Him with our lives. Remember the vows you've made, congregation. Thus Christ leads us in the singing of this psalm to serve and fear God preeminently. Just as He told the crowds in Luke chapter 12, He tells us again in this psalm, don't fear kings, don't fear those who can only harm your body. And as for those wicked rulers, don't fear them, don't worry about them. He will cut off the spirit of princes. That's what it says in verse 12. He'll utterly deflate them. He'll knock the wind out of them. They won't even have a desire, a spirit left. He will cut off the spirit of princes. And if Christ is not recognized to be so now, then one day he most certainly will be awesome, awesome to the kings of the earth. That day is coming. It's coming. He's going to be awesome, congregation, to the kings of the earth. Do you own and acknowledge Christ to be that king? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have brought to us this morning. We thank you for the message of Psalm 76, and we pray, O Lord, that you would help us not to fear what man can do to us, but to fear you and to live for you preeminently above all else. We thank you, O Lord, that if we are in Christ, all the anger that you could possibly muster has been poured out on your Son in our place. And you embrace us and you comfort us. You delight in us. And I pray, O Lord, if there are any, if there are any in this place who have not cast themselves upon the Lord, for their salvation. O Lord, that you would work in their hearts by the power of your Spirit, and you would draw them to yourself, that they might know your comfort, your friendship, and your love, and not your anger or wrath anymore. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.